Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. Companies have to ask themselves why we keep asking nonprofits to solve the problems that we're not willing to ameliorate ourselves. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Instill. Today, I'm interviewing Kavel Brown. Kavel is the Social Impact Partnerships Manager at LinkedIn, where he manages nonprofit and philanthropic partnerships across North America. Kavel seeks to deploy and leverage the company's assets to help nonprofits scale their impact and make economic opportunity, healing, and wholeness available to all. In this episode, Kavel shines light on the role of CSR social impact practitioners in the nonprofit sector, as well as his approach to philanthropy and life. He shares his candid thoughts on what nonprofits, corporations, and CSR departments can do to create impactful volunteer engagement and implement change in our communities. We do not hold back as we authentically explore the role for each of us in building the world we want to see. This conversation gave me so much energy, and I know it's going to do the same for you. So let's dive in so you can meet Kavel. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Kavel Brown. Kavel, welcome to What the Fundraising. Mallory, thank you for having me. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. Super excited for this conversation and just thankful for what you do for the space and social sector and nonprofit community. Yeah, I'm excited for this. Oh, thank you. I feel the same way about you. I can't even remember how we first came into each other's virtual worlds, but I just so appreciate everything that you put out into the ethos. And so why don't we start with you just sharing a little bit about you and what brings you to the work that you're doing today in our conversation? Great question. And for a lot of people in a social sector, the work is personal. You know, I think the political, the spiritual the sociological all kind of come together. And that is the same thing for me. I'm a, I like to say I'm a Christian Black man from Queens. Those are like my core identities that come up. And for me, you know, I grew up in a single parent home, first generation college graduate. I grew up in public housing in New York City. And I went to Syracuse University that studied information management technology. And at one point, I went to school with Michael Jordan's daughter, just to give you context to Syracuse, (laughs) which is like insane, right? And then was blessed enough to go to a Catholic high school, and it's all makes sense in a moment. And through a student sponsorship program, which is a nonprofit that helps low-income kids get into private ed- school education. So I say that first and foremost because nonprofits have been a part of my life forever. I love that a lot of times they become the extended family or they fill the gaps that your family can't. And, you know, my mom raising me and my twin brother by herself with the help of, you know, my grandmother who lived down the block and stuff like that. Like, that was the community foundation I went to that helped me get to private school, but how that relates to the work that I do now is I constantly had to ask myself, being in these kind of like white elite institutions of why is KVL able to show up in these spaces, but my community, my family is not able to. 
And I had to sit with that, right? And from what, at one point, I was interning at JP Morgan, and I was literally going from Wall Street to the projects. Like, that was my reality. Hopping on the R train, going to Water Street, for those who know from New York City. And I had to say to myself at that time, like, am I going to just chase the bag that I never had? Or how do I leave a legacy of impact? Because I just can't do this for the sake of doing this. Mm. And I don't see my people, my community, the struggle that I see my people in, in my day to day. I felt those things were mutually exclusive from one another. But I found out about corporate social responsibility, which is what I do now. And I've been blessed to do. And what brings me to it is just like, I want to see communities whole. I want to see people free. I want to see people healed. And I don't see people suffer. And I know that there's personal accountability and we can have that conversation and all those types of things. But I understand that people don't ask to be in certain situations. Like the the child who grew up in foster care or the, the child who grew up in public housing, like myself, they don't have choice in that. And they have to navigate those barriers. They have to navigate being racialized. They have to navigate all these things that they never said, hey, yes, sign me up for a harder life. And my goal is like, how do we make that different through a a mind frame of hope, love, and truth. I love hearing your story and thank you for sharing it. For folks maybe who are coming to this conversation and have seen social impact positions at a lot of companies, but don't necessarily know what that means. Can you Mm -hmm. break that down for us? Like, what does that role embody? The easiest way I can explain this is CSR slash corporate social responsibility, which is what the acronym means, slash social impact, slash corporate citizenship, slash community affairs, like so many interchangeable things, slash purpose, whatever, is how a company does social good in the world. That's simple terms. To give a great analogy, I'm a basketball fan. LeBron James, for those, he's on the Lakers, probably one of the greatest basketball players of all time. <laughs> LeBron does well in his job as a basketball player to win championships with the Lakers. They're struggling right now, but that's him doing well. Him doing good is opening the dream school in Akron, Ohio, where he's from. My job is doing good is akin to opening that school in Akron, Ohio on behalf of the corporation, whether that's, and that looks like philanthropy, that looks like volunteerism, that looks like cause marketing, meaning like how do you attach yourself to a good cause when you put marketing dollars behind that to attach your brand to that cause. Like for instance, LinkedIn just partnered with Dove to help support the Crown Act and end hair discrimination, especially Black women face so much hair discrimination in the workplace. That's caused marketing, right? Or it's disaster relief. So the war in Ukraine or the earthquake in Turkey or the crisis in Afghanistan, what's our response to that? How do we show up? That's what it looks like. And over the years, I've spoken to a lot of different people in CSR departments, and you share some of the reason why in terms of your own background and orientation, seem to really have an appreciation for and a love for the nonprofit sector. I'm curious, do you feel like that is typical? Like, do folks inside CSR departments intimately understand what it's like to run the day-to-day of a nonprofit? A thousand percent. Not everyone, but a vast majority. Like I interned at a nonprofit called On Point for College in Syracuse. Shout out to them where I was helping single moms, always Sudanese refugees get into college and traveling all throughout upstate New York. Interned with organizations called America on Tech, which is helping the digital pipeline to tech jobs. And a lot of my colleagues come from the nonprofit sector, whether they want the programming, the development side. So Shoutouts to my colleague, Pam Hacker, who used to run, who, who works at Warner Brothers Discovery. She and I met at HBO. She used to work at 
do publicity for Sesame Street. Most people don't know that Sesame Street is mm-hmm. actually a nonprofit. My colleague Karina used to work at a college access organization. So many of my colleagues, and even folks that I haven't worked directly with, have direct experience in a nonprofit space. And I think that's a part of the job. I think you're a good practitioner if you're critical and aware of the nonprofit industrial complex. You need to be aware of, hey, baseline, you have a board of directors, a nonprofit funded by government, private philanthropy, corporate money, and high net worth donors, understanding like advisory boards, give, get, asks, how the development team, if we're going to be honest, sells what the programming team does, then there's HR and finance and how the, all that stuff shows up is something that you should be able to rattle off on just the way that I did. Yeah. So one of the things that I feel like is starting to shift in the relationship between CSR and nonprofits in healthier ways versus like 10 or 15 years ago, although we still see some historic platforms around this, is around volunteerism and sort of the expectation of volunteer opportunities without compensation to nonprofits for the time or energy or sometimes materials that go into that. Because I think- We're very value aligned in a lot of ways. And I so appreciate that you led that with like understanding the nonprofit industrial complex, because there are a lot of things that are broken in that complex that have led to this assumption. But I'm curious, like how CSR departments or you even just individually are thinking about that element. It's hard. I'll say that up front. I think the worst ways that it manifests is that it's a it's a revenue play, right? Plug and play. Mm-hmm. I have corporate opportunities. And it's not no fault to the nonprofit, right? Like I blame the people with the money, like most of the time. Like I don't blame <laughs> it with like I think we'll all start trying to survive capitalism in some form or fashion. And I feel like I have these like turnkey opportunities that I know is gonna grab anywhere from five to ten grand. I can pump them out and do that. And that's going to be a consistent revenue stream rather than me having to apply for a grant or like do a corporate fundraiser or do a gala, quote quote unquote. And then on the corporate end, the most critical part is like, hey, like, are we doing this to expose privileged people to like poor Mm -hmm. slash more diverse slash more oppressed people in order to change their minds for the sake of them making feel good? Right. And maybe there's some saviorism in part of it. I think that's the most critical version of that, both Mm -hmm. sides of that table. I think a more benevolent and ideal version on the corporate side is like we're filling a gap that you need and you're getting an experience and an access to institutional resources that you normally wouldn't on the nonprofit end. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the most ideal way that I could show up. But I think where the tension and the conflict come in is like the need for revenue on the nonprofit end and then also the need for the business case of why my job exists, which is employee retention, employee sentiment. Like that is cited as the reason why KVL or any social impact practitioner has a job. It is not to say like we want to be the butlers of service to the employee base, but it's also like, especially with Gen Z millennials, you know, want to care about their work. They want to feel like I'm not just making money for the man and people need help and guidance on where that is. And we provide those opportunities for them of like, you don't know about homelessness, but we know this org in San Francisco that does this work. You want to know about foster care, like first place for youth, somebody who helps people get their first home coming out, aging out of the system. And that's being that conduit is part of the job. So, you know, it's a complex, it's layered. I think it is on a spectrum of how it shows up. Yeah, I think, you know, you bring up a really good point too. Like I think on the nonprofit side, there's a lot of reflection needed around like, what is the point of that type of engagement, both in terms of the impact of the volunteer opportunity for the same reasons that 
companies need to look at that. You know, what are we doing this for? And I believe like you, that there are ways to find collaboration that are not harmful and aren't those quick old school ways of dropping in and dropping out or hitting some short-term metric without being long-term value aligned. And I think for organizations who are listening to this, like one pattern I see a lot, and I'd be curious if you feel like you see this too, are organizations that try to offer things to companies for free, like volunteer opportunities, but the hope, the like long-term play is that maybe there will be like a grant down the line or funding down the line, but they're not transparent about mm-hmm. that up front. And it leads mm-hmm. to this mm-hmm. really uncomfortable dynamic. I definitely see that. And I think that if you're on the other side of the table and you're a funder or a practitioner, like you should be aware of that. And for me personally, my goal is I never want to do the dance. I don't want to do the dance. Like if I'm asking for a volunteer opportunity, I'm going to be honest with like, hey, like here's my budget for that. Or here's how I don't have budget for that. Or here's what I'm looking to do. Just being upfront and as honest as I can be. Like my job is I want to subvert the funder donor power dynamic as much as I can and be countercultural or be the antithesis to the nonprofit industrial complex as much as I can. If a practitioner is not critical about that, I think you need to rethink your seat. Full stop. But I understand where the nonprofit space is. And sometimes things is, it is what it is. And I'm a big fan of candor and care. And I'd rather let you know a door is closed. That way you can spend your energy knocking on another one rather than keep knocking on mine. And I know I can't open it for you. Everything that you just said there, I want to like triple click on. I mean, I think a closed door is so loving, is so respectful, is so like it is a gift to have someone give you clarity on where something stands. And I think this whole dynamic between nonprofits and practitioners and funders where there's the conversation that we're having and then the other conversation that we're actually having, but we're not right, saying, right. you know, we're not it's, being just, about it. it's bad yeah. for everyone. It's bad exactly. for everyone. And it wastes exactly. everyone's time and resources. And I so appreciate what you said around the examination of practitioners for themselves around how they are upholding potentially harmful power dynamics in those relationships, because I just think that's so important. You talk really publicly about being an abolitionist on LinkedIn, and I've loved learning from you about that and reading. And so I'd love for you to first explain to people what that is for folks who might not know that term, and then also talk about what does it look like to hold deep beliefs like that, and then work in a big institution, whether it's LinkedIn or any of your previous positions, and sort of holding those pieces of yourself. Yeah, I'm gonna try to do this justice. I'm a baby abolitionist. Let me just put that out there first and foremost. (laughs) And there are groups and mountains of people that I have benefited from just their political education work and their labor to put out, whether from like a public intellectual standpoint, or just first and foremost, like people in my life, big shout out to my attorney brother, Corey Tillman, who's a scholar and does abolitionist work and does work around the incarceral state. A lot of this stuff is like just folk having conversation and doing that political love work of like, hey, let's think about an idea. Let's question our assumptions. Put that disclaimer out there first and foremost, because I'm not the leader of this by any means. Shout out to Angela Davis, who has been doing this work for decades. I think the way I define abolition, and usually abolition is in the context of the prison industrial 
system, complex, if you want to say. So usually like when you say abolitionist, people are PIC, prison industrial complex abolitionists. Mm. However, you can be an abolitionist for anything. It's really a framework. I've like, I want this thing to cease to exist as it stands. And I think what the abolitionist framework is and what I think people get caught up in is like, okay, like, for instance, like police or prisons. It's like, wave of magic wands, goodbye tomorrow. And like, people are like, wait a minute, I don't know what to do about that. And that makes me scared and fearful. And it's more of a say, like, how do we tear down or erase what is here and, keyword and, simultaneously build up a new reality? Mm. Because everything is part of society, is a part of someone's imagination. And someone thought about, hey, we should have a prison. Hey, we should have buildings. Hey, we should have a democracy, right? So it kind of removes the limitation that we cannot think of a new world that doesn't have restriction, incarceration, the way that we have it now. And for me, that comes from a spiritual place. I'll take onus for my people. The Christians, we need to get our act together. We sit on different spectrums of theology and politics and all the things. However, the Jesus that I profess to love on a daily basis, there's this idea of radical grace. Of what does it mean that no one is unredeemable? And I'll say this boldly, and this is hard truth for me to sit with, of everyone is forgivable, whether it's the person who cheated on their wife or their partner, all the way to the person who murdered three people or Harvey Weinstein, which is hard truth to sit with, but that's the spiritual conviction that I have, which leads me to a place of, I want people to be whole and I don't want them to be condemned to the place where their wrongs lead them to a spiritual and social death, that which now prison is today. Mm. And that's abolition. I think holding it in these spaces is not an easy task. I think abolitionists or folks who subscribe to this ideology, it's easier to do in theory than it is in practice, a thousand percent. But it is a progressive journey of the decarceration of like, hey, like putting education in prisons is a decarcerating act. Us having folks like a street team in San Francisco where people from the fire department show up for people who are unhoused, that's a decarceral act, right? Like Mm -hmm. removing bail is a decarceral act. So it's like there's a spectrum of things that exist in an abolitionist framework whether it's an action or an outcome that people don't even think of like, hey, like we're actually moving away from, I'm going to lock people up in cages and there's no means to like say, hey, I'm going to rehabilitate you to be a whole human being coming out of this process. And what does it mean to center atonement in Mm. that? Which is different from retributive things. So in these spaces, I have to hold on to the fact of when I'm giving money to a nonprofit called Black and Pink, which is a national organization that's based out of Omaha. And there are prison abolitionist organization explicitly on their website. And they support queer and like people living with HIV on how to get whole when they come out. I'm like me trying to advocate for their funding. It's not to say KVAL is amazing, but it's more so to say like, what's my ethical and moral and spiritual responsibility? And part of me getting them funded and helping to lobby and advocate for that is a part of how I try to manifest abolition on a daily basis. I love everything that you shared. And Dominique Morgan is a friend of mine and was a guest on this podcast and we just had an instant connection and I love her and the work that yeah. she's been doing. So we'll link to that episode below. And something I hear so much in how you talk about everything from your abolitionist work to how you think about partnering with nonprofits, it just 
feels to me like there's so much space for curiosity and wonder and critical thinking like for yourself sort of like consistently challenging your own assumptions or inherent beliefs can you talk to me about that and and if you have daily practices that you feel like really help ground you in that part of you First Tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tea of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tea of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. I think it's a commitment to learning and that sounds like trite in some ways but it's knowing that I don't know a lot I have to have a commitment to understanding the world where it's okay like what did I just read about it's New York Times or I don't even read it yet but it's like maternal deserts and I'm like we had food deserts now we got maternal deserts mm. and I'm like it makes sense even just hearing the headline I can make sense how that shows up but I'm like I have to care about that mm. even though what I do at LinkedIn doesn't really relate to that but I think it's more so to saying like I want to know how the world shows up why it shows up and what is the pain and what is the healing that is happening around the world and I think as a practitioner like I have to have a sociological imagination to the point where I understand how the tree relates to the forest and how the forest relates to the tree. And if I'm not doing that, then again, I have to rethink my job of if I can't understand the complexities or even like how Bonsolaro was the Trump of the Latin America all the way to the at least a little bit of like the conflict with Tigray and Eritrea and Ethiopia, all the way to the geopolitical chess game and proxy battle that's happening between the U.S. and Russia, all the way to the rise of state violence in the U.S. What am I doing? Also that I think more personally, like my proximity has changed where I am a socially mobile person. I no longer, because class is an experience. I no longer in that working poor environment, which in which I grew up. And that's like the explicit class experience that I grew up in. And that like my proximity has changed and that my assumptions cannot remain the same. And me and my colleagues talk about this too, of like, what does it mean to be an upwardly mobile person in this space as a Black person, as a Latino person, as a person of color, who when every call that you have or every volunteer thing that you do, you see your family, your cousins on the other side of that Zoom or in that room. But know that like you are removed from that experience, you know, in some ways than you were before. And then I also, I think about radical love and hope. I think about how my faith is like, I'm like, when I think about Jesus and not to be an evangelist on this, but this is just how I show up. I think about like the concept of there's gold in the trash can. No one's ever too far gone. Life is hard. People are going through a lot. How do I see things through the heart of God and say, will I hear my people's tears? And how do I stay tender to that? And know that people are just trying to make it. Mm. And the grace that I need is the same grace someone else needs. And I never want to get caught up in being hard on people, being hard on the process, and understanding that I want my heart to break for the things that God's heart breaks. 
that's my prayer. And I try to keep my heart sensitive to those things. How do you manage your own pain and healing Mm -hmm. in order Mm -hmm. to hold so much space for that? It's hard. First and foremost, I go to therapy. I've been going to therapy for three years. Privileged and fortunate enough to do that because therapy is still not accessible and the need is so great. That's one way. I mean, it's been like probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. It's been transformative. It's been healing. It's been restorative in so many different ways. And it comes back to a spiritual practice of, and I get less mincy about this because the collective trauma that I think Black people faced, myself, when George Floyd died, we never knew how hard it would be for the curtain to finally be pulled back on America. And for me, it was the worst mental health moment of my life, one of. And I came to the realization of, especially from a theological perspective of like, I don't believe in an outlook of humanity that we are inherently good. I believe in human depravity. But that helps me say to myself that I'm not living for this world. I'm living for a heavenly one. And that the liberation and the love and the justice that I want to see may not be in my lifetime. And I think I relate that back to, regardless of what so many spiritual practice is, I relate that back to my ancestors who were enslaved. Some died out of protest and committed suicide of protest, but other people kept going. And I'm like, that's inherently a spiritual existence of asking, why am I here? Where am I going? What is the purpose of life when my existence is hell on earth? And I'm politicized, racialized, traumatized, terrorized in a way that can leave someone in a state of despair and nihilism. How do I still persist in the midst of that? I think it allows me to say, hey, like this responsibility is not on me completely. I can do my part and I can't show up in everything, but I know who can. And that allows me to sit in the tensions and the rationalization of, okay, there's hope in the world. I'm complicit in some ways. I'm a work in progress. And I know there's good on the other side of everything. I think there are so many pieces in there that are that there are so many people who are going to be grateful for hearing that, who listen to this podcast. And I'm really grateful to have been able to hear that too. And I think however people find their healing path or their ability to take care of themselves or look for it or search for it, I think what you're demonstrating is to be able to to give yourself some space for that. And the accessibility around therapy, there's just no question that how it continues to disenfranchise and oppress and what your own healing journey allows you to do that's really inspiring to see is to like see this web of interconnection that is both really supportive of your work and it sounds like also in some ways continues to support your mental health to say like I see the threads that I'm pulling towards this ultimate goal of liberation and I'm not responsible for pulling all the strings that it sort of gives you this macro relationship to this macro and micro relationship and it's really inspiring to witness and hear about. Thank you. I receive that gratitude and I hope someone's encouraged by what I'm saying. And I love what you said too. It's just like, however folks find it, it's important. And I think I was talking about this today of like the system wants us to be defeated. And that's not to, that's not to lean into toxic positivity because I do not subscribe to that to whatsoever, but we all have to find our ways to cope. Suffering is real at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that piece around 
I was just interviewing this doctor yesterday who was talking about how a regulated nervous system does not mean that we do not go into stress states. It's that we've Mm -hmm. built the neuroplasticity to be able to come back from them. And trauma wounds us in ways that require much deeper healing than an immediate sort of stimulation of our sympathetic nervous system because we're stressed about a deadline, right? Like we're talking about two different things and I, and I'm not talking about that sort of like deep trauma necessarily, but even just recognizing that there are going to be a lot of different forms of suffering in the day to day, both in terms of our own and what we're exposed to and knowing that going there and being there and sitting in that and looking at that or reading that article might be really uncomfortable. And if we're looking to just avoid discomfort at all costs, if we are bypassing that exposure, then we are also not able to tap into, I think, the beautiful moments of tenderness and the healing and all of those pieces too. I completely agree. That is very well said. I appreciate it. Okay, I could talk to you forever. (laughs) And I want to. But I'm going to force myself to look at the time. So tell me, is there a question I haven't asked you that I should be asking you? Yeah, I remember when you messaged me, you talked about like, what can nonprofits do to continue like movements? When you asked me, I was like, oh, this is an interesting one. I'm like, do I even have license to peer into this? And like, I'm learning now that it's harder for me to separate the institution or assets that I'm attached to, you know what I'm saying? But I think if someone were to give me permission to like peer into that, I want to say, first and foremost, I think nonprofits are doing better than they think they are. First and foremost, I think it's to give yourself grace that you are doing. Honestly, I'd say the Lord's work, honestly, of day in and day out, the emotional, mental, physical, spiritual labor that you do on a day-to-day basis especially if you're doing that integrity, doing that with cultural competency, not doing that from perpetuating harm standpoint framework. Like you can lay your hat down at you like you had a servant's heart and you do. If someone is saying that you're not doing enough, like let that roll off your back. And you don't need to hear that from me, but I feel like I need to say that and I want to. I think the second piece is, I think that examination of how is my organization perpetuating a colonial neoliberal form of change. And if I'm not critical of that for the sake of tangible metric outcomes, then I need to rethink my life, right? Because what people like me who were served by nonprofits, who filled those gaps for my family and my people or whatever have you, what we don't need is further indoctrination into a system that continually harms us. I know it's hard because there's like, okay, like, for instance, the education space, love education. Like it's a virtue, a gift, a universal human right. If I'm not critical about, am I getting these poor black and brown people to go to college? And I love college access organizations, they're near and dear in my heart. For the sake of them finding a job, for the sake of them going up the socioeconomic ladder at the cost of their mental health, elitism and self-esteem, at the sake of getting corporate dollars to say, hey, like, I'm getting these black and brown folks to higher education so they could become corporate people and they can raise their, that's a real stat line. That's a real data mm-hmm. point that gets people out of poverty. Like I would not be here if that didn't happen, but also being critical of the fact of like, why does our education system stratify in the first place? Mm-hmm. And how is that off of a colonial period where 
the people, plantation owners who didn't have to work had to figure out who do we teach to become a scholar slash a theologian, right? And who do we say who works the farm? But now that's come to say who goes to college and who does the internships and who gets the money versus who's going to flip burgers at McDonald's and no shade to that thing. But we have to figure out who fails and who doesn't, who eats, who doesn't, who gets luxury and who doesn't. And that's baked into our educational system. So how am I culpable or challenging how people think about why do people have to be stratified in their journey of learning? And how do we steal the joy out of children as we go through that? That's how you keep the movement going. There's a book out there like teaching is a form of liberation. I can't cite the books off the top of my head, but you got to bring that into your space because otherwise we're just creating the same thing over and over again. And then we're like, oh, we're solving the issue. But like, are we really getting to the root of the problem? And I can riff on education, as you can see, forever. But <laughs> we could pull on all the money in the world, to like building skills, getting mentors, getting people to understand the, the faster process. At some point, we got a question why schools are funded by property taxes, which is based on white supremacist kind of policies and redlining. And if like we're never questioning that in the first place, how are we advancing the movement? Are we do we want people to be free or do we want people to continue the system? Yeah. And I think, you know, for folks who are just starting to think about the ways in which their organizations are baked in, like you said at the beginning, right? The nonprofit industrial complex. Like I've had so many organizations come to me and say, okay, well, for 20 years, our organization and all of our funders and all of these different things are rooted in oppressive and discriminatory practices. And now we realize it all of a sudden because of a lot of what's happened Mm. over the last few years. And so just to know, and like community-centric fundraising, my friend Brianna Dorellis, who talks about community-centric volunteerism, will drop a lot of resources in the notes for folks who are looking to start to expand their own education around pathways forward to look critically at your organization and have resources to support those changes. Yeah, I mean, the resources are critical. And I kind of went a little harder than that. I was like, corporations have to ask themselves too, like, how long are we going? And granted, you're talking to an anti-capitalist in theory, right? <laughs> it's hard to escape that system because it's all areas of life. It's not just capitalism, it's a racialized capitalism. They are hand in hand with one another. So I'll just start that out there. But companies have to ask themselves, why do we keep asking nonprofits to solve the problems that we're not willing to ameliorate ourselves? Mm. Because we don't have a strong enough social safety net. We believe in stratification. We want people to have less than. We also want the comfort that we have in the West or in the the white dominated countries that like that comes with the backs of the global South, that comes with the backs of other countries. And it's like, at what point will we lay our knees down and say, am I willing to examine my soul? Really quick, you think about climate change. It's like you could argue to your blue in the face about the energy needs and you can argue to your blue in the face about retirement plans. I'm like, the snow don't care about that. The sea levels don't <laughs> care about that. Wildfires don't care about that. Ask the people in Turkey. Ask the indigenous folks who had to move. They don't care. They don't give a damn about your 401k plan. They don't give a damn about your marketing plan. At what point do we care about life more than we care about profit? And that's always the, I know what the answer is because mm-hmm. we see it. I love what you're saying. And I actually do think it's something that nonprofits need to look at too. They wouldn't use the word profit, but the reality is, is like, what decisions do we make to keep our organizations going versus actually eradicating this issue? And what are the policies that we hold inside our organizations that are 
perpetuating the systemic issues that we also claim our organization is there to solve. So pay inequity right. happening inside of nonprofits or people not making oh, living wage, right? Like, I mean, we could have a whole other right, conversation, right, right. but I yes. think at the end of the day, what you're asking and what I'm asking is like, who are we and what is right. the point of what we're doing here? And can we be honest about those things to make sure that the practices and the ways in which we're showing up are in alignment and in integrity with our deepest right. selves, with our truest selves and with what we say and hopefully truly want? A thousand percent. Thank you so much for this conversation today. Where should people go if they want to follow your work, connect with you? LinkedIn, you know, I'm always going to try to say what God wants me to say. I use my platform for just building, doing good in the world. I'm not on Instagram, I'm not on TikTok, I'm not on Twitter. I mean, I have like accounts, but I don't use them anymore because just for my mental health sake. But I think that's where folks can stay connected to me. I try to be responsive as I can and connect with just the love and the community that, that comes through. And I, you know, sometimes I'm like, is this worth doing this? And like that encouraging message of saying like, hey, I appreciate this always goes a long way and gives me energy to keep moving. Yeah, folks, you should go and follow him at least. And you're always posting helpful things for nonprofits to LinkedIn for yes. nonprofits. We'll put links all to time. all of those resources below. So thank you so much. I'm grateful for this. It's probably one of the best conversations I've had in a while. All right, there is so much inside this episode, but here are a few things I am double clicking on right now. Number one. In nonprofits, there is a lot of reflection needed around the point of volunteer engagement, especially in terms of impact. I do personally believe that nonprofits should be compensated for running volunteer programming for companies. And I also think nonprofits need to be honest about why they are doing those volunteer activities in the first place. Both sides need some reflection here, and you should check out the work of Brianna Dorellis for community-centric volunteer practices. Number two. A no or a closed door is actually a gift of clarity. It is respectful of the nonprofit and funder's time, and it should be respected. Number three, we need more clarity and transparency between donors and nonprofits and to work together to dismantle the harmful power dynamics between them. Number four, discomfort is a part of change work. As fundraisers and social impactors, Therapy can be a tremendously helpful tool for managing your own pain and healing so that you have the capacity to do this work. I so appreciate Kavel's openness about his own journey there. And number five, how is your organization perpetuating a colonial neoliberal form of change? If you're not critical of that or looking at it, you might need to rethink your role and your mission. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Bell and our amazing sponsors in Still. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week.
Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.